Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. It is so great to see you and to be able to do church together in 2024. This is uh, really special, and, uh, and I'm really thankful that you're here today. My name's Kevin. I'm also one of the pastors for North Langley Community Church, and I focus here on our Aldergrove campus. And if you are new or visiting or just checking out church, maybe it's part of a New Year's resolution, maybe someone pulled you and dragged you to church today, whatever reason you're here, I'm really thankful that you're here, and I've been praying that you would have an encounter with Jesus today. Being that it's early in the new year, uh, how many of you have decided to do any kind of New Year's resolution? How many of you are willing to admit that you're trying any kind of New Year's resolution? A lot of people like to do them, but you don't like to say them out loud, right? You just like, I'm going to work on this, I'm going to eat better, I'm going to exercise more, I'm going to be on screens less, but I'm not telling anyone because I don't want anyone to hold me accountable to that. Well, that's okay. Um, you do you, and that sounds great. Um, but I have a question for you. It got me thinking. If you could ask God for any one thing, what do you think you would ask him for? As we're thinking about things that we would like to improve or change in our lives, what is the one thing that you would ask God to do for you if you could? Now, I know that when, when we think about questions like that, we, we can very quickly go to kind of our, our regular answers, like, oh, I just, I, I'm so thankful for forgiveness and love and salvation. These are great things. These are the best things. But what if, like Solomon, God asked you, what is one thing that you want me to do for you? How would you reply to that? If you could receive one miracle in your life, what would it be? If you could ask God one question and know that he would give you a straight, honest answer, if you could ask God to change one circumstance in your life or conquer that one sin that just kind of keeps coming up again and again, if you could finally believe that one truth that just seems so elusive and too good to be true, if you could have God heal that one relationship or repair a broken marriage, if he could alleviate a fear or an anxiety in your life, if you could be freed from the power of sin, or maybe have healing over a physical, emotional, or mental health issue? What is the one thing you would ask God to do for you? In today's text, there's a man named Bartimaeus, and he is given the opportunity to ask Jesus for one thing. And later today, I'm going to be inviting you to take your one thing, or maybe two things, and bring those things to Jesus and ask him specifically to do something for you. Our text today has what seems kind of like two unrelated uh, Jesus encounters, but I believe they're next to each other for a reason. I'm going to get into that. But in today's passage, Luke is kind of building up some tension and some, uh, yeah, some tension between two different parts about what it means to follow Jesus. He starts with predicting his own death, his brutal, awful, horrible death, and then he performs a miracle in which he gives a blind man his sight. And offers kind of a new lease on life, hope and joy. And so those are kind of the two parts that we're going to be looking at in our scripture today in Luke chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 18 or the words will be on the screen as well. We're going to start in verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside, his twelve disciples, and he told them, We're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. 
So in today's story, Jesus is nearing the last leg of his journey. He's going through Jericho on his way up to Jerusalem, and it's close to the time when he would enter Jerusalem, give his life on the cross, and then three days later rise from the dead. And we call this this week that is coming up very soon Passion Week. And so Jesus knows that the cross is just around the corner and that his time of suffering was almost at hand. So he shares this with his disciples. He's thinking about it. And it's difficult for his followers to understand. His disciples that are following him, they they had an idea of what the Messiah, who they believed to be Jesus, what that was going to look like. And, And no framework in their minds included a suffering or a dead Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to be powerful, a mighty conqueror, a deliverer, and overthrow all the enemies of the people. And so even though Jesus spells out for them, he says very clearly in this text that the people that Jesus is going to suffer and ultimately die and then rise from the dead, the disciples don't understand it. It seems impossible for them to wrap their heads around. N.T. Wright says it like this. He says, this is so totally outside anything they had imagined, wanted, dreamed of, or pondered that they simply can't understand it. They assume he must be speaking in riddles, but they don't know what the riddle means. They certainly don't think that he means it literally. They do, however, go on following him. So Jesus knows what's about to happen. This is actually the third time in Luke when Jesus predicts his death. It happened twice in Luke chapter 9, once in verse 21 and again in 43. But this is the most graphic. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. And the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. And we think, how could they not know what he was talking about? He just told them so clearly. Even though Jesus is super clear, his disciples still don't understand what is happening. It's like they're blinded by their ideas of what the Messiah is supposed to be like. Um, Why? Why would they not be able to see it? Well, David Garland says, to someone who says that he is headed up to Jerusalem to suffer and die implies that to inherit eternal life may require suffering and dying as well. And that's just not part of what the disciples understood could be possible for the Messiah. A suffering Messiah really increases the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So the disciples don't see it even though he's straight up and honest with them and super clear. So that's our first section, and it points out the disciples' lack of sight, their lack of vision for what Jesus is doing. And now we're going to go into the second part of our text today, which is also about sight. We're going to pick it up in verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Here in Luke, this man is not given a name, but the same story is in Mark, and in Mark we learn that his name is Bartimaeus. So I'm going to call him Bartimaeus today instead of just referring to him as the blind beggar. So at this time, people with physical limitations like Bartimaeus... They would not have had many options on how to take care of themselves or earn a living, and so the most common was to beg, and people would support themselves through begging. So day after day, and week after week, and year after year, Bartimaeus would sit near the busiest part of the road that he could find, and he would beg. 
And as I mentioned, we're getting close to the Passover, so it's kind of a busy time of year. Lots of people would have been going through the city on their way up to Jerusalem. It'd be kind of like traveling the week before Christmas. Were any of you brave enough to travel the week before Christmas? Good. Well, I see a couple hands. I was going to say foolish, but whatever. It worked for you. You got to where you needed to go, and I'm sure you had a great Christmas. But, there, there's, but that's kind of like what it would have been when Jesus was going through Jericho. But there's even a bigger commotion than is usual for this really busy time of year. So Bartimaeus hears the roar in the crowd start to increase. And he's, it's obvious that something out of the ordinary is happening. So he says, what's happening? What's happening? And someone tells him that it's Jesus. Now, we're not exactly sure what Bartimaeus knows about Jesus, but he seems to have been paying attention to all the hype that was surrounding him, to all the things that people were saying about him, because he seems to have some insight that maybe eluded even the disciples. Whatever he had heard, he believed it, because he believed in Jesus. And in verse 38, it says, He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus shouting Son of David means that he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. Son of David was a term and a title reserved only for the Messiah. So this blind beggar sees that Jesus is the Messiah. We just read how the disciples couldn't see what Jesus was doing because of a a framework that that was or sorry, with something that was outside of their framework of what the Messiah could be. But here a blind man sees Jesus for who he really is. And he's shouting and he's screaming and and he's trying to get Jesus' attention. And those around him are super annoyed. And they're like, Bartimaeus, just be quiet already. Bartimaeus, you look like a fool. You're distracting. You're, You're annoying everyone with your shouts and with your screams. Jesus is too busy and too important and doesn't have time for you. Just earlier in Luke chapter 18, children came to see Jesus, and the disciples rebuked them and told them to go away. But here Jesus seeks out those that society marginalizes. For the disciples, kids, and beggars like Bartimaeus were seen as nothing more than annoying intrusions and distractions. But they matter to Jesus. The neglected and forgotten matter to Jesus. In fact, he seeks them out. Luke is setting us up for this contrast and this tension between those who have physical sight but are unable to see spiritual things and those who lack physical sight and are able to see spiritual things. The disciples don't see it, but the blind man, Bartimaeus, he does. And he's not going to be silent, so he cries out all the more shrilly. And as he's calling out in verse 40, it says that Jesus stopped in order that the man be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? What a great question. What do you want me to do for you? I want to see, he replied. I love how direct Jesus is. What do you want me to do for you? How often do you and I, I'm just going to talk about me for a second, how often do I skirt around what I really want from Jesus because I don't want to be seen as too needy or seen as greedy, or maybe even too dependent on him. I like my independence. I like being able to do things myself. And it's silly when I say it out loud, but to think about Jesus asking Kevin, what do you want me to do for you? It's a powerful question. 
And it's important to know that right here the you is singular. He's not saying, what do you, the crowds and the people, want from me? But he's saying, what do you specifically need from me? What do you want? It's personal. I want you to think back to the questions that I asked at the beginning of this sermon. What is it that you would ask God for? Yes, there's love and forgiveness and salvation, and of course we want those things, but those things are actually given to us as children of God. Those are things that he offers to us corporately and personally. But Bartimaeus is offered the chance to ask for something specific, something personal, and he shares his request. He goes for it. When he meets Jesus, he goes for it, and he asks his question, and he asks for his sight. Being blind wasn't something that people knew how to heal at that time. So Bartimaeus being blind meant that he was blind. That was the end of the story. Only the rarest miracle could restore sight. David Garland says, So Bartimaeus' answer to the question presumes that Jesus, son of David, the Messiah, has the power to restore his sight. See, Bartimaeus has a spiritual insight into what Jesus is doing that the disciples seem blind to. What a contrast. Okay, in verse 42, Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. I love this story. I love that, that Bartimaeus is so specific in his request, and I love that Jesus answers his request. This is such a great story. I want you to remember back, if you've read the beginning of Luke before, back in Luke chapter 4. There's a story about Jesus being in a synagogue and where he reads part of the Old Testament. He reads a section about Yahweh restoring his people. This is from Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16. He, Jesus, stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. And recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What do you want me to do for you? I don't know if Bartimaeus had heard the story about Jesus reading from the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue. I don't know if he was just waiting for his chance to meet Jesus because he had heard Jesus declare from his own lips that he had come to restore sight to the blind. But either way, Bartimaeus ends his interaction with Jesus having both physical sight and spiritual insight. I love this quote from Craig Keener that says, Jesus characterizes Bartimaeus's insistent, obstinate plea for mercy as faith. His insistent, obstinate plea for mercy, mercy as faith. May that be true of us. May we bring our insistent, obstinate pleas for mercy to God, and may he see that as faith. And I love the response from this miracle. It's twofold. Bartimaeus becomes a follower of Jesus, and it says that he started following Jesus. There were the 12 disciples that followed Jesus, but there was also a crowd of people that kind of went with Jesus from place to place, and it seems like Bartimaeus became one of the larger crowd that followed him. He, Jesus doesn't ask him to follow him. He just shows up and starts following him. 
And the second thing that happened is, is that all the people that were there praised God. The point of miracles isn't just to heal someone, but it's to give glory to God, both personally and corporately. So part of the tension that Luke is creating is that the blind see, even though the religious easily miss it. The blind see, even though the religious miss it. Now, whenever we talk about healings, there's a lot that we could say about healings and how and if Jesus heals today. I bet if some of us today were, were given the opportunity to ask God for one thing and know we would get it, would ask for some form of healing, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And whenever there's a healing miracle in a sermon, I always feel conflicted. I believe that God can and does heal today. I've heard stories and know of people whom God has miraculously healed. But I have rarely gotten the type of miracle healing that I have asked for. In my life, the most obvious uh, example is that for more than two decades, I was praying that my wife, Christina, would be healed of a number of physical ailments that she has, the biggest being stomach and intestinal issues. Christina's had these health issues for, for 20 years, and she suffered from many chronic, debilitating health issues. And I prayed for healing for my wife, Christina, probably more than any other prayer that I've ever prayed And for two decades, we kept praying this prayer, and instead of Christina getting better, she got progressively worse for 20 years. She suffered a lot, and in the early years, um, we, we, we really expected God to do something powerful and miraculous right away, and we asked for that time and time again. Earlier this year, Christina was able to get surgery to repair the issues in her intestinal and stomach area, and and it it was a massive success, and she has a new lease on life, and we are so thankful, and I believe that God healed her using our medical system and doctors and nurses and, and just advances in science, but it was not the dramatic miracle that I prayed for. So there's a tension, because God does heal, but he doesn't always heal. And he doesn't always heal in the way that we ask for. And Christina still has other chronic health issues that have her on long-term disability. And we've prayed for healing of those as well, but she has yet to be healed from them. So every time we come across a healing miracle in my sermon, like we are today, I'm actually tempted to show you a video clip. This video clip is from Alpha. uh, And there's a session in Alpha all on healing. And... uh, And I want to show you that today. It's a little bit longer of a clip. It's about five minutes. Uh, And in this clip, I'm hoping two things happen. One, that it will help us to think about healing in a biblical way. And two, I hope it gets you excited for Alpha. Okay, so we're, we're starting Alpha in a couple of weeks on the 25th. It's going to be on Thursday nights. I'm going to be there. A number of you are going to be there. This is the place where you can invite friends and family and neighbors and coworkers to explore what it means to follow Jesus, Jesus together. Now, if you can make it through this clip on healing, this is probably like the most charismatic out there thing that Alpha does. Um, And so if you can handle this, you can handle all of Alpha, okay? So it's never, like, it's never more scary than this. This is as, as scary as it gets. So let's watch this clip together on healing. Of course, not everybody gets healed. I think of a very good friend of ours, Patrick Pearson Miles. Patrick has total kidney failure. He had a kidney transplant and it didn't work. He's been on dialysis now for 25 years. 
No one has more faith in the area of healing than Patrick. Patrick has prayed for so many people, and many people have been healed. But he himself has not been healed, although we've prayed for him so much. But I find what Patrick says is really encouraging. He says this, I have received the greatest gift, which is eternal life. If I get healed, that will be a bonus. When Jesus sent his disciples out and when he taught, he spoke a lot about the kingdom of God. He said, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. The kingdom is God's sphere of influence. And one day, God's sphere of influence will be complete when Jesus returns. There are over 300 references in the New Testament to the second coming of Jesus. And when Jesus returns, everyone's going to be healed. There'll be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more pain. God's kingdom will be complete. But right now, that's not the case. We live in between the times where we're awaiting Jesus' return. And right now, not everybody is healed. The way that Paul puts it is like this. He says, right now we're groaning inwardly because we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That's only going to happen in the future when Jesus returns. will be the total redemption of our bodies, total healing. But what Jesus says is this. There is a future kingdom, but there's a present aspect to it right now. You can experience a foretaste of what will come in the future. Sometimes in England, after a long cold winter, we get a few really warm days in early spring when it stops raining, the sun comes out, and it feels like summer. And suddenly everyone's in shorts and t-shirts, but summer has not arrived. The next week it's freezing cold again. What we experience there is a foretaste of summer. It tells us that summer is coming. But when Jesus healed people, it was like a foretaste of the future. It tells you that one day everybody is going to be healed. But right now, not everyone is healed. So what about healing today? Well, if God calls you into the medical profession, then that is an amazing calling. If you look at the roots of hospitals, they often go back to Christian institutions set up in the belief that people matter to God because they are made in his image. And God often heals people in ways that we can explain, like through the advances in medical science. But sometimes he heals people directly in ways that we can't explain. So we shouldn't stop praying, especially when the medical profession can't do any more. One time I got a call to go to the Brompton Hospital where I was the assistant chaplain. Actually, when I got the call, I was on the squash court, and it was quite urgent, so I rushed to the hospital in my squash gear with my squash racket still in my hand. And when I arrived, I met the person who'd asked me to go, a, a mother called Vivian. And at first of all, Vivian was a bit surprised to see a vicar in squash gear. It took me a little bit of time to persuade her that I actually was a vicar, but when she was convinced, she asked me to go and pray for this little boy. She was a mother of three children, and she was pregnant with her fourth. The third child, Craig, had Down syndrome, he was 18 months old, and he had a hole in his heart. He'd been operated on, but it had been unsuccessful. So the doctor said that there was no hope for him. He was on life support, and three times they'd asked for her permission to switch the machine off and let him die. The mother wasn't a Christian, but she said, I want to try one last thing. I want to get someone to pray for him. So that's why I've been called. I went into the room. He had tubes all over his body. And I prayed for him in the name of Jesus to be healed. 
And then I went to chat to Vivian and talk to her a little bit about faith. And there in the hospital, she gave her life to Jesus Christ. Two days later, I went back into the hospital to see how he's getting on. And she came running up to me, so excited. She said, after you prayed, Cray turned the corner and he's recovered. He still had Down syndrome, but he was healed of that heart condition. Now that was not a placebo effect or the power of positive thinking. No way it could have been auto-suggestion. He was just a baby. That was 27 years ago. Today, Craig is still going strong, kept in touch with the family all these years, and he's the glue in that family, a remarkable young man. She said to me afterwards, I didn't believe, but I do believe now. Of course, I've also prayed for lots of people who haven't been healed. But as John Wimber used to say, when we prayed for no one, no one was healed. Now we pray for lots of people, some are healed. So now we pray for lots of people and some are healed. We don't stop praying. I want to read this quote again from Craig Keener. Jesus characterizes his insistent, obstinate plea for mercy as faith. May that be true of us. In my life, I've actually been discouraged many times, and I've gone seasons where I've stopped praying for the things that I really care about, that I really want, because it feels like I'm just banging my head against a wall. I've had seasons where, where it's just felt too hard to ask God again for that thing where I feel so broken and where I feel wounded. But today I'm moved by the words of Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Going back to the beginning of my message what do you want from the hand of God? What is the one thing that you would say if Jesus asked you that question today? What do you want me to do for you? I'm going to read this list again. Would you want to receive one miracle? If you could ask one question, if you could change one circumstance about your life, if you could conquer that one sin that keeps rearing its evil head up again and again, if you could believe that one truth that seems too good to actually be true, if you could heal that broken relationship or repair a broken marriage, if you could alleviate fear and anxiety in your life, if you could be freed from the power of sin, if you could be healed physically, mentally, or emotionally, what is the one thing you would ask God for? Now, before I go any further, I, I just want to say that it's important to note that Jesus is not a magic genie. We don't get to manipulate God. So please don't hear me saying that. But I do believe that God is the giver of good gifts and that he loves us and he wants to give us good things. So let me ask it another way. What do you think Jesus wants to give you today? What do you think the one thing that if Jesus were to speak directly to you that he wants you to hear today, that he wants you to know today, that he wants you to receive today? Could it be contentment? Could it be self-control? Could it be a healing could it be a greater devotion and deeper love for him? Would it be confidence in your identity as a child of God? Would it be consistent time spent with him? Would it be a love for the lost or the broken or a greater trust in him? I guess the question is, where are you broken and where are you in need? I think a lot of times we, we, we get things backwards. We think that we have to actually get our lives straight and we have to get everything in order, and we have to conquer sin in our life, and then we can start asking God for things. That we have to attain some spiritual state of holiness before we can approach God. 
And I want you to hear this. If you feel stuck in your sin or your brokenness, if you feel controlled by anger or addiction, if you feel distant from God, if you feel completely broken and messed up inside, that you don't think you can approach God, I think you are actually in the perfect place to receive from God. Because then you're approaching God out of your weakness and your brokenness and your authenticity and not out of your strength. See, too often we think we receive from God after we've done enough or achieved enough. But it's usually the reverse. It's in our hardest moments. It's been in my hardest moments that, have I, that I've actually felt the closest to God. Where I felt his inst- intimacy and where I felt his presence. It hasn't been in the great times when things are going well. It's actually been in those broken places. In those moments that I actually just want to pray through and just pray that God would just fast forward my life to past this circumstance. In this new year, maybe you've decided to embark on a new Bible reading plan or increase your devotional life, and that's great. I encourage you to do those things. But what if in addition to that, we made it part of our plan to bring our brokenness and our weariness, to bring our authentic, honest, vulnerable selves before the Lord? What if we brought our blindness and our weakness and our sin and our disappointment and it was part of our regular to just bring those things to Jesus? If we could be completely honest about what it is that we hope to receive from him. It was actually through two decades of seemingly unanswered prayers for Christina's health that God developed in us a dependence on him that we would have never had had he said yes to that first prayer that we prayed. It brought us closer together It forced us to trust in God and trust in his understanding and his provision and not our own. I can't count the number of times in my life I've prayed asking God to make my life easier. Lord, just make this easier. It's too hard. And sometimes he says yes. But sometimes it's actually through him saying no that my dependency, my intimacy, my love for him has grown. So I believe that there's so much value in us bringing our authentic selves bringing our need before him, both because he's a good God who loves to give good gifts to his children, and also because there's a maturing and a growth that occurs when we bring those things to him by answering that question, what do you want me to do for you? Sometimes the best and most beautiful things come in circumstances that we would actually just pray away. Sometimes, like Jesus, our road is marked with suffering, And sometimes, like Bartimaeus, we receive the exact miracle that we ask for. So today, I believe that Jesus is inviting you to answer that same question. It takes courage to ask for something you really want because you know that if the answer is no, that that's going to hurt a little bit. And that's going to be hard. It takes courage to search the depths of your soul and share with God what you truly need. 